for whatever reason, I have fond memories growing up watching that old Disney movie, The Sword and the Stone. It's a retelling of the King Arthur legend, where after the King of England dies, he has no heir, and at that point, a sword mysteriously appears trapped in an anvil atop a stone, and has an inscription that reads, whoever is able to pull the sword from the stone becomes the new rightful King of England. But none are found worthy. For quite some time, this is what plunges England into the Dark Ages. That is until finally an 11-year-old boy comes along named Arthur, who comes uh, up to the sword and effortlessly pulls it out. And it turns out that what made one worthy of this enchanted sword, Excalibur, was not brute strength, uh, but rather virtue. Young Arthur was brave, noble, and true. Now, there's an illustration here, a parallel. You take this story, familiar sword in the stone, uh, stone story, and just substitute this sword with Jesus and the reward with eternal life, and it leads to a question like, what does it take to be worthy of Jesus? And the reason this parallel just came to my mind is because Jesus himself talks like this. On several occasions, he made it clear that only those who were worthy of him could follow him and receive eternal life. Jesus himself is the greatest treasure. It is worth everything to gain him because when you gain him, you gain eternal life. And so what does it take to gain him? You might think that the answer is virtue. Like young Arthur, you have to be honest. You have to have integrity, holiness. But no, if that were the case, none would be found worthy. For scripture teaches that there are none righteous, not even one. We don't have enough virtue to commend ourselves to God. Perhaps then to be made worthy of Jesus, you have to complete some epic task, like the seven labors of Hercules. You have to do something great to prove you're worthy for the Lord. The religious version of this is good works. Just go on a pilgrimage, give your money to the poor, pray long prayers, do good deeds. But that doesn't work either because scripture teaches that none of our good works commend ourselves to God or make up for our sins In fact, because of our sinfulness, Scripture teaches that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. And this is, again, why we need a Savior. So then, how do we become worthy of Jesus? It kind of sounds like none are worthy of him. It's an impossible task to gain him. We can't pull this sword out of the stone. And in a sense, that is the case. None of us have any strength or virtue or merit in ourselves to earn or gain Christ. But it is not hopeless, and the sword is not immovable. It can be taken. He he tells us to come follow me. But Christ also lets us know it only happens one way, and it is by faith. That we, we gain Christ by faith. We are made worthy by grace through faith. It's just like the classic verse says, John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever just believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And according to every world religion, how do you gain eternal life? You've got to work for it. You pull out that sword through brute strength. You have to earn it. But in the end, the sword never budges. But when you come to just simple, true faith, you find that the sword's unlocked. It just it comes out effortlessly. Christ is gained by faith alone. That's good news, and I trust not new to you, but a good reminder. There is a kicker, though. Like 
what, what exactly is faith? We know works, we can see them. But what exactly do we mean by this, this faith, this true faith? And how do you know you have it? It's not so simple because the Bible says there is such a thing as false faith or a, a phony faith. And so what makes for true faith, which alone makes us worthy of Jesus? You know, eternal life, according to Christianity, it just, it just seems so easy. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. Like, it does not require some religious odyssey. You don't have to do something great. You don't even have to be a good person. You just have to say you believe in Jesus. Maybe sign a card, pray the sinner's prayer, maybe like throw in some baptism, and you're told you're saved forever. It just, it's so easy. It's very low bar. Just make a decision for Jesus. But then what do you make of passages like Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus himself says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom. Now, on the last day, Jesus himself envisions many people who call him Lord, but then he declares to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. How can this be? Like all those people seemingly made a decision for Jesus. They called him Lord, but they're being condemned. And then many other passages teaching the reality of false faith, false conversion. And so the question remains, how do you identify true faith? If the Bible teaches faith is what makes us worthy of Jesus. So what then does faith, true faith, look like? Well, that is what we're going to find out today from the Lord himself in Matthew chapter 10. So take your Bibles, open them now with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10 records the most important discourse Jesus gave on the topic of discipleship. And we've been in it for weeks, and so we don't really have any time to do much of a recap. But as Jesus prepares to send his disciples out to preach for the first time, he instructs them on what to expect. And we found so much of his instruction applies to us. He's preparing all of his future disciples for following him. Now, today we're in verses 32 through 39. We're very near to the end. So far, Jesus has given an expectation of opposition, that this road will not be easy. He sends them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. They might face rejection, arrest, even death. He says they'll be hated by all for his name's sake. Look, this is, just, this is how the world treated Jesus, the master. And he says, this is how they're going to treat you his disciples. Now, having said so much about the hard road before them in this chapter, at the end here, Jesus wants to make sure this doesn't stop them or deter them. I mean, you read this chapter again, like in the worst case, there's just like a tsunami of persecution coming their way. But Jesus tells them, like, you should not fear. Do not fear. They're going to encounter many fearful situations, yes, but he also lets them know that the triune God will be with them, working in them, to give them courage, which is all about doing and saying what is right in the face of fear. Now, that's not the end of it, though. Before concluding, Jesus wants to address one more wrong response to all the persecution headed their way, their way for his name's sake, and that would be denial. And especially if they're overcome by fear, they're going to be tempted to deny the Lord to save their own skin. It's happened before. It would be a mistake, though, because remember, only in Christ is eternal life found. 
You don't want to forsake eternal security for the sake of temporary security. But Jesus knows for these disciples, for all disciples, nothing will test their faith like persecution. And so in the next passage, verses 32 through 39, he helps them face that test head on. In this passage, there's no commands. This is Jesus like throwing down the gauntlet. He wants his disciples to be confronted with that ultimate test of discipleship now, before it comes, that, that they may consider this testing. And accordingly, he presents them with what following him might cost them. It might cost them security in the world. It might cost them relationships with their family. It might even cost them their own lives. But do they believe gaining Christ is worth all these costs? And do you? What we find here is the picture of true faith. Jesus is showing here what it takes to be worthy of him. It's what he says. Here's what it takes to be worthy of him. And the picture is not one of works or effort. We have to do all these things. It is a picture of, of simple faith. But we find that while salvation is free, it is also very costly. That this true faith means an unwavering allegiance to Jesus where he is first in your life and there's not even a close second. This allegiance to Jesus might cost you everything. But the true disciple proves ready and willing to pay any cost because he knows Jesus is worth everything. You know what Jesus says here should lead all who claim to follow him to soberly examine self. Something we're all commanded to do. It's a good thing. Are you a true disciple? If you're truly willing to accept these costs that Jesus presents, then you can be sure that by grace, through faith, you have been made worthy of Jesus. So let's consider this now. Matthew 10, 32 through 39, reading as we go. But we find these three costs that separate true from false disciples. Three costs that separate true from false disciples. And and together this reveals the type of faith that is worthy of Jesus. So first, verse 32, the, the cost of security. The cost of security. Let's let's start in verse 32. Lord says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. You start by breaking down that the first half of verse 32, everyone who confesses me before men. The main verb here is to confess, meaning simply to assent, to admit. When it comes with an object here being Christ, it means to profess or to acknowledge. So confessing Christ means to acknowledge him. You are giving assent to all the truth claims of Jesus, that he is God and man. He's Lord and Savior. He died. He rose again. But clearly, this confession goes beyond merely intellectually assenting to the facts of Jesus. The demons can do that. This confession requires a conviction and agreement. So it's where you assent the fact that Jesus is the Lord and Savior, but in addition, you heartily acknowledge he's my Lord. He's my Savior. And so you notice the parallel in the classic verse, Romans 10, 9, which says, if you confess with your mouth, 
Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Confession really is an identification with Jesus where you're happy now even to represent him. And that's what Jesus is getting at here because the confession he has in mind here is before men. Do you see that? It's not just whoever confesses me. Whoever confesses me before men or others. There's a clear emphasis on the public nature of this confession. And if the context tells us anything, it's the fact that the disciples, they're not always going to find themselves surrounded by like-minded, friendly believers. They will at times face a hostile crowd, those who do not confess Jesus. Look, it's one thing to come to Christ and, and confess your newfound allegiance to Jesus as Lord and Savior at your baptismal, where everyone's clapping and celebrating you. It's another thing to then confess your total allegiance to Jesus as Lord in front of your unbelieving, extremely liberal family who loves heaping scorn and ridicule on those conservative Christians. You can see what Jesus is getting at here. He has in mind confessing him when a cost is involved. Confessing him in the public square when it may not be safe to do so. Now, we're going to revisit the cost shortly, but to finish verse 32, look at the result of those who make such a confession. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. That's pretty amazing to think about. The the tables are reversed. Jesus is now doing the one confessing. He is confessing in us. This verb has clear connotations of judgment. Like we know God is the judge over all mankind, but John chapter 5, Jesus said that the Father has handed all judgment over to the Son. That this Jesus, he is the one who has been appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead, Acts 10.42. This explains why back in Matthew 7, we see Jesus as the judge on the last day. Later, Matthew 25, verse 31, likewise, after Christ returns, he sits on the throne and he is the one judging all the nations, determining who enters his kingdom and who is cast out. So Jesus is the judge and here he he is confessing us before the Father in heaven. Now, we know God the Father and God the Son are always united in the work of salvation. It's not like God's in heaven waiting to find out who will be saved, waiting for Jesus to give him the list. No, Father and Son are always on the same page. But the Bible teaches that God the Father has chosen to relate to this world always through a mediator. And the final perfect mediator is Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. So the point is this. Our eternal destiny and our relationship to the Father are mediated through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself speaks as if on the last day, The deciding factor when it comes to our eternal destiny is his confession of us. Who is he going to confess to the Father? This one's with me. I'm just kind of imagine that the day of judgment, you're standing before a great throne, books are opened up. You know, if you were to be judged by your deeds, what you have done in life, you've no hope, you're a sinner. But Christ is there, your advocate. He testifies, he confesses you by name, saying to the Father, this one is mine, my blood is paid for his sin. Just imagine that. This Jesus is one with the Father. 
And so if we want to be with God, we had better be one with Jesus. We had better be united to him. And scripture teaches that happens how? Same thing, only one way, by faith, by confessing him. But here Jesus teaches true faith is one that is unashamed, one that will confess him before men accepting the cost, believing Jesus is worth more than the cost. The flip side of this needs a little explanation. Verse 33, it's the opposite. He says, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. That's that Matthew 7, the terrifying thought. You don't want, I don't know this one, I, I never knew you. Depart from me. You don't want that. So listen, it sounds like you had better confess Jesus, right? This verse says nothing of the divine side of salvation. Jesus here is clearly emphasizing our, our human responsibility, and that's good. We need that. This is, this is our part. We need to take this to heart. Do you confess Christ before men? And when you add those, those last two words, it's not so easy, before men. Jesus here is effectively raising the bar of discipleship. This is no mere easy believism. We're like, hey, all you have to do is just verbalize the words, Jesus is Lord. Like, sign this card, get baptized, you're good to go, forever. But, like, not so fast. You see the test here. It's not just about confessing Jesus, but the test is confessing him before men. That is a hurdle. That, that's the hard part. You see how verse 32 starts with the word therefore. So it's, it's obviously connected to this context. Jesus just finished detailing how you can expect to be treated if you take his name by the world. Slander, rejection, hatred, arrest, even death. In that context, when you're faced with that, it's suddenly not so easy to confess Christ. There's a cost. And do you know how many Christians have truly been presented with the choice of either confessing Christ or suffering the consequences? You know, the, year, the year was AD 257. And this was the eighth great persecution of Christians by the Romans, eight out of ten. And there's two women, Rufina and Secunda. They were educated daughters of a nobleman in Rome, wealthy, and they both were engaged to two men who were also very wealthy. All four of them claimed to be Christians. But when this eighth persecution started, the two men quickly recanted their faith. They didn't want to lose all their wealth, which was being seized. And they tried to persuade the two women to do the same. But they refused. And so later, the men turned them in. And they were arrested for being Christians. They were later brought before the governor of Rome, refusing to deny Christ before men. They were beheaded. Just two of thousands with a similar story. Like, confessing Christ is not always so easy. Here, Jesus is presenting the first cost that separates true from false disciples. And it's the cost of security. You follow him, you may not be secure here below. You know, to confess Christ before men in this present evil age might cost you. It might cost you physical security. The world will treat you poorly for Christ, it might cost you financial job security. You might lose your well-being, your income. It could cost you relational security where others you love burn bridges with you because you follow Christ. I mean, to confess Jesus before men comes with risk. But will you accept 
the cost of security to gain him. I hope you see his value and his worth, that it's worth it, and I pray you're not ashamed of Christ or his gospel. Jesus says this in Mark 8, 28, or 8, 38. Uh, This is a different occasion, but a similar saying. Mark 8, 38, he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now look, we, we need this by way of encouragement to know that the Lord is patient with his people. I mean, who among us has been like 100% bold in every situation? Maybe you even once suffered a lapse in courage like Peter and you did deny the Lord. Maybe you encountered a hostile crowd, you didn't want to take the heat, so you just zipped your lips shut and you denied him by omission. You just didn't say anything. Look, thankfully, the Lord is gracious. He knows we're weak in the flesh. That's why he's saying this. He's trying to embolden us, prepare us. You should also know the difference between a Peter and a Judas. Peter fell short. He denied the Lord, yes, but... He came to his senses, repented, returned to the Lord. He was forgiven, restored, and emboldened such that the next time he did not remain silent. He confessed Christ before men at cost. Peter would live without security pretty much for the rest of his life, but he gained eternal security. Like the Lord will be faithful to hold you up. You be faithful to trust him and not be a closet Christian. Like we know it's very hard to do, especially when you have family that's up against you. So much so, this gets its own treatment. And so we find the second cost is the cost of family. This comes from Jesus. We're not making this up. The cost of family, verse 34. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, this is one of those verses that runs totally contrary to like the modern evangelical messaging about Jesus, like, like buddy Jesus. He's accepting of everyone. He wouldn't hurt a fly. But this verse catches him off guard. And if this verse doesn't shock you, how about, again, not a parallel, but he said elsewhere something similar, Luke twelve forty nine. He said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. This was shocking to the disciples as well. I mean, that opening phrase where he says, do not think, indicates that he knows what he's about to say runs contrary to their expectations. Like, of course, naturally, they thought Jesus came to bring peace. Why would they think that? Well, they believed he was the Messiah, and this was a messianic expectation. Right? Isaiah 9, 6, he's supposed to be the prince of peace. And so they believed the messianic kingdom would be ushered in any moment, and that would be a kingdom of peace. Of course, he came to bring peace. And what the disciples did not expect for sure was a rejected Messiah, or definitely not a crucified Messiah, by his own people. Now, at least at first, the disciples expected acceptance. Thinking back to even the original setting, Jesus sending the twelve out to preach for the first time, Verse 5, only to the cities of Israel. What do they expect? How do they think this mission's going to go? I have to believe at first they thought this is going to be great. They're given the power to heal people, work wonders, 
they only have a good message, like, we found the Messiah, the kingdom is coming. It's their fellow Jews, like, this seems great. I'm sure they expected everyone to receive their message and rejoice. Why wouldn't they? That is not what they would encounter. Many would reject them and their message. And look, in this, in this sermon, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what it's going to be like in the time between his two comings, which is not one of peace, but conflict. That's what he means when he says he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword is a very familiar symbol for conflict and division. So Jesus is saying, like, on purpose, he came not to bring peace, but to cause division and conflict. This is purposely a shock statement. It's meant to catch us off guard and arrest our attention. Because we too, we expect Jesus to be a bringer of peace. Like, what does he mean? Maybe you're likewise confused, like the disciples. Like, but I thought Jesus was supposed to bring peace. What does he mean? Well, look, the answer is yes and no. Yes, Jesus came to bring us peace with God. We know all humanity was at war with God in sin and rebellion. Jesus came on our behalf, on behalf of his people, to broker peace between them and God. He did that by putting away the source of our enmity with God, which which was our sin. Jesus established a costly peace by sacrificing himself on the cross to make atonement for all of our sins. And having paid for sins or put away the debt, he established reconciliation between us and God. This is why Romans 5.1 can say that therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ's gospel, it really is a gospel of peace. What he said to his disciples is true. John 14.27, my peace I give to you. John 16, 33, in me, you have peace. Just keep in mind, though, both of those verses, you got to read the whole verse because they have an important contrast. John 14, 27, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. John 16, 33, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. Here's the predicament. The peace Jesus gives does not mean the absence of strife. Jesus came that we might have peace with God. The fact is, we know not everybody receives him or believes in him. Many people reject the Prince of Peace. And that puts him on a a trajectory of conflict with those who accept him. Of believers, Colossians 1.13 says this, that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Good for us. But the domain of darkness still remains, right? And lovers of darkness still remain. The prince of darkness still remains. And so now that we, by grace, have switched sides to the kingdom of light, like, how do you think they will react to that? You need to see that when Jesus brokers a peace treaty between you and God by paying for your sins, by grace through faith, a brand new war opens up. Your old allies, the world, the flesh, the devil, they declare war on you when you follow Christ. And this is how you can be at peace and at war at the same time. In Christ, you follow him by faith. You can and should say, it is well with my soul. You have perfect peace. But outside in the world, 
you still have tribulation. In fact, much more now that you follow him. The coming of Jesus split all history into B.C. and A.D. It split nations and peoples into for him and against him. And even splits families, which these are the tightest bonds we know as humans. Many animals have no family ties. A fish might lay a thousand eggs never to see him again. But not so for humans. Like There is no stronger bond that we have than family. But the point is, he's, he's making an allegiance to Christ can cut that bond. Verse 35. He says, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies with the members of his household. And here Jesus illustrates his point with our tightest family relationships, like a father and a son, and a mother and a daughter. Like what, what's tighter? What tighter bond is there than that? But even these can and, and may be cut out of loyalty to him. Jesus adds a mother-in-law against a daughter-in-law, and that one all stood out to me because I'm like, that doesn't need much to divide. I mean, they're already pretty contentious, but, but especially in the ancient Near East, the daughter-in-law was accepted like a daughter. You get the point, though. Allegiance to Jesus will introduce great family strife, and Jesus is presenting the second cost that's going to separate true from false disciples, the cost of family. Are you willing to accept the fact that because of your faith in Jesus, your greatest enemies in life might come from your own family? That will test your discipleship and your faith, big time. Look, it's not like when we become Christians, we automatically start hating our family members and turning on them. In fact, we probably start loving them for real in ways we never did before. We honor them, we want to serve them. And, and sacrifice for them. But just as a consequence of your faith, Christ now is your Lord, because of that, just many of them are going to turn on you. You don't have to be mean or obnoxious for them to hate you. You can, you can try to be as nice as possible, but Christ said the darkness will always hate the light if they're still in the darkness, just kind of how it is. You can try and blend in, not say anything, but we already covered that with the first cost. The true disciple will confess Christ before men. That includes family. So you you can't just be silent and blend in. And once you show your true colors, like, hey, you actually believe the Bible. That means you believe your unsaved loved ones, they're still lost and dead in their sins. And that for them, their only hope is to repent and believe in Jesus. And you want to tell them that, but once they figure that out, I mean, you're asking for trouble, unless the Lord wills. Like some don't want you poking around their conscience. So they might ridicule you, slander you, ostracize you, or worse. So can you accept this? This is especially hard when you, you come from a household that practices another religion. At that point, converting to Christ is a matter of family shame. Back in ancient Rome, if a young person converted to Christ from a pagan household, it was a lot of trouble. A young person could no longer... Uh, participate in all of the pagan rituals and ceremonies from offering incense to the household gods to walking in a temple procession. Couldn't do that anymore. But these were family traditions and a matter of civic pride. So these Christians, they're seen as turning their back on family and the state and country. 
This brought shame and reproach upon the whole family. So naturally, families put tons of pressure on Christians to either recant or at the very least, like just worship the Roman gods in addition to Christ. Like, can't you do both? But you should know, no, we can't do both. It's only one Lord. And so much family persecution ensued. This still happens today. Some of you have probably had to face this cost. And often the first test of loyalty a new believer will face is with family. But if your newfound allegiance to Christ causes them to turn on you, like, we don't want this, we're not asking for this, but ball's in their court, we can't deny our Lord, so be it. Like Don mentioned this morning, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, but it's a two-way street. We're not going to burn any bridges on our end, but the rest is on them. Still, is this how you would respond? In the next verse, Jesus makes the test of faith through the cost of family explicit. Verse 37. He said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So, like I said, here's where Jesus uses some of that language. Are you worthy of him? What does it take? Well, here's the second cost. You just have to love him more than family. Jesus is supreme. He demands the highest allegiance, even over blood. We value our families above all else in life, but Jesus is worth more than life itself. You can kind of think about it this way. You wake up, middle of the night, your room is filled with smoke. You realize the house is being engulfed in flames. You've got a split-second decision to make. You can only save one thing. So it can be a prized possession, like priceless art, photo album, important documents, or your only child. What are you going to do? It's, it's obvious, no-brainer. It's not even a close second you're going to save your child. I mean, just the value difference, like your house and all your possessions on one side and your child on the other side, it's, it's totally different categories. There's no comparison. And Jesus is saying the same thing regarding him. Now take all your family, which is of the supreme worth in this life, and Jesus on the other side, he's worth more. If you were forced to choose as much as you love your family, you have to choose him. You would have to deny your family identity over your Christian identity. That might be painful and costly, but is he Lord? You, you can't deny him. I'll say again, this is not easy. But listen, when you let Jesus himself do the talking, when he characterizes true faith, true discipleship, that really throws easy believism out the window. It's easy to be worked up in emotional high and make some decision for Jesus. Now you're a Christian. But it's hard to then go home to your spouse who's not a believer. And your decision to follow Christ, that's going to radically change your life your lifestyle, your choices, and she's not on board. And so there's going to be so much conflict and division. What if she threatens to divorce you and take the kids? You don't want that, but could you handle that? You you call that easy believism. No, that's, that's real faith. That's costly faith. Faith is costly. And many a false believer has abandoned Christ, denying him to keep the peace. And if you do that, you you might maintain your earthly relationships, but you're going to lose one with your Father in heaven. This is hard, but I would pray you make the right choice 
We, we love our family the most, but you cannot make an idol even out of your family members. You can't allow them to get too close to the throne of your heart. And they, they certainly can't sit on that throne. That throne belongs to Christ alone. This, this Lord gave his life for us eternally. That the throne is rightfully his. And now we must live for him. For this Christ is our life. This is a good place to get to the third cost. The cost of life. These three costs that separate between the true and the false disciple. The third one. The cost of life, verse 38. He says, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Here Jesus takes this last cost all the way, demanding life itself. You must take up your cross and follow him. He'll he'll say this again. This is a, a familiar saying. It's obviously figurative. He's not demanding that we literally carry a crossbeam on our back everywhere we go. That said, the next time Jesus says this in Matthew 16, he will tell the disciples for the very first time that he's actually going to be literally crucified. He will bear the cross all the way. What he means here, though, is it's figurative. It is informed, though, by the real act of crucifixion and cross-bearing. Crucifixion was a brutal form of Roman execution reserved for the worst criminals. And when, when they wanted to make an example out of someone, they hung him on a cross and you're left to slowly die over days. Once condemned by the Romans, a person was forced to carry his cross beam to the place of execution. It was a slow and painful death march. And so here's what they think when they hear, pick up your cross. You're picking up that cross beam. It's a symbol of like, you're going off to die. This is a one-way trip. We're not going to see you again. You're not coming back. The cross itself is a symbol of death. I mean, today, what's, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of a cross? You probably think of a religious symbol, like behind me. We, we turn the cross into jewelry, art, architecture. It's not wrong, per se, but back then, the first thought would have been terror. It's like a guillotine or a noose. It's, just an, it's simply an instrument of humiliating, painful suffering and death. And shortly before Jesus was born, there was a Jewish insurrection against the Romans in Jerusalem. And in response, the Roman general Verus, he sacked Jerusalem and he crucified 2,000 Jews. And their crosses lined the roads for as far as the eyes could see. And it left the Jews with a deep impression of what it means to bear a cross and what it means to be crucified. What the cross signified. And with this in mind, what does Jesus mean by telling us to take up our cross? Figuratively, it means dying to self. When you come to Christ, the life you lived before is over. You renounce yourself as Lord over your life. You forsake self-will. And instead, you bow the knee to Jesus as Lord and follow him. Like He calls the shots now. If the road he leads you on involves suffering, persecution, and even literal death, like so be it. You accept that. Bottom line, the life you lived before Christ is now over, and the God you served before Christ, self, is now dead. You follow Jesus as the risen Lord, come what may. You need to see this, and then you need to see that in verse 38, Jesus is not making this commitment optional. You see that, right? He's not describing an upper echelon of disciples. Like, this is what it takes to be an apostle, or like a pastor, or missionary. 
Now, he presents this as, as the bottom line. This is the basic price of admission to follow him. This is something Jesus expects of every disciple. You must take up your cross, deny self, and follow him. If you don't, he says, you are not worthy of him. And a lot of people back then and now say they follow Jesus. They take the label of Christian, but then they don't actually follow him. And you know that because they don't actually submit all of their lives to the Lord. Like they'll hand over a few aspects like, okay, I'll give them Sunday morning. I'll go to church, give them a little time. Okay, I'll throw in a little money. I'll give them a little bit of money. But they hold back so much of lordship over their lives to themselves in business, in relationships, in habits, in pleasures. At the end of the day, like, they do what they want to do. Even if it's against what God's word says, at the end of the day, they're just, they're going to do what they want to do because they're still Lord. They might pray, not my will, but your will be done, but they don't actually mean it because they don't even struggle to live that way. And a believer, we struggle to live that way. We still fight the flesh, but they don't even wrestle. And certainly they're not willing to pay the costs we discussed this morning from security to family to life. I fear, sadly, these are the types of people who will hear on the last day, I never knew you. I know these are some hard and sobering truths, and this might even describe some of you here this morning. But it's better to take a long look in the mirror now and examine self, examine your confession of Christ before it is too late. We know that America is home to nominal Christianity, where countless verbally confess him with their mouth. But they're not willing to take up their cross and lay down their life to gain him, to follow him. I pray you are. As he says in the next verse, to finish verse 39, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. We know there's so many people who cling to life here below. They're desperately trying to preserve their comfort, their pleasures, their security, their wants, their desires, even though they run contrary to the way of Christ. And they might get it all, but they're going to forfeit life eternal. Instead, those who lose it all, meaning they, they lay down their lives, their interests, their will to gain Christ, they receive his eternal life. Some of you might think, this all sounds like way too extreme. Like, who does Jesus think he is demanding this much from us? Like, he's demanding we love him more than family and life itself. Like, how can he say this? And it's true, if anyone else made these types of demands, we would not call him a good teacher. He'd be a megalomaniac lunatic. Like, no man, yeah, not even a king, is worth this type of allegiance. And it just comes down to this, then. Like, who do you say the Son of Man is? Is he just a man? That he's not worth any of this devotion. He is a liar and a lunatic. But is he like Lord of Lords? Is he God and man come down? Did he die on that cross to pay for your sins and rise from the dead? Is he returning to judge but also bring his people to a kingdom of peace? If that's who he is, then everything he demands is actually perfectly appropriate. This is only right for him to demand this because he is the Lord. He's God. He's supreme. How could we not live entirely for him? And really, that's what this whole chapter is about. Matthew 10. It contains all these radical statements on discipleship. And it's, it's a lot. It's, this is extreme. But you know, this is not Jesus 
trying to prepare all of his disciples to be martyrs, as if that's what God wants. God wants every single one of us to just go die for our faith. That's not what actually God wants. A few might actually be called to pay that ultimate price, so be it. But I'll tell you what, what God wants from every single disciple. It's not necessarily to die for him, but it is certainly to live for him. And Jesus knows only when you're ready to lay down your life are you ready to start living for him, which is what God really wants. And so this chapter, it's really Jesus preparing his disciples to live for him for the rest of their lives. And really, that is the hard part. You know, in a sense, couldn't you say, like, it's, it's easy to die for Jesus. It's hard to live for Jesus, right? Like, many husbands would say, like, they would happily take a bullet for their wives. In a moment of crisis, they would step in, they would do it. They would die for their wives. But how quick are we to daily die to self-interest and put their interests first and sacrificially serve our wives for all of life? That is hard. That is way harder, it seems like, right? And likewise, you could argue that it's easy to die for Jesus, like in a moment of intense persecution. You think you would do it, amen? But what about daily dying to self every day for the next 50 years? You're living for his purposes. You're seeking first his kingdom, his righteousness. You accept all the consequences of taking his name, living as light in a dark world. That is hard. That, that's the hard, hard part. That's the cost. Confessing Jesus is not easy. It's easy to say the words, but faith is free, but it's not easy. Now, the Lord knows all this. That's why he's saying all this. He's, he's preparing us and helping us. But he's looking for true disciples, and his words here are meant to cut between the true and the false. Better to learn now and repent and believe, for real, lest any of us should be deceived. But as you examine your confession and you know you are willing to pay the cost, could be security, could be family, could be life, you can know you, your faith has made you worthy. That has to be our final reminder, though, coming back to faith. All this talk of true discipleship it makes it sound so hard. Like, it, like this is impossible. We're back to the sword and the stone situation like this. It seems impossible to even follow Jesus. Who can follow him like this? Who is this bold, this committed? Like, I'm not. I don't live daily for him perfectly like this. None of us do. The Lord knows this. He knows we still wrestle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Every time we sin, we're betraying our allegiance to him. But again, he is a gracious savior. This is why he came. You can say discipleship is hard, but we have to remember in another sense, it's easy because Jesus already did the hard part. The real hard part is bearing the weight of our sins on the cross. Like he picked up his cross first, literally. He took that cross to Calvary where he died and bore the wrath of the Father that was meant for us. And he finished. He said it is finished. He rose again. And he offers us life for following him. That's the hard part. That he, he finished the real hard part. By grace, we receive all of the benefits in life itself as a gift, God's gift to us. Now, all we must do to gain him is believe, and it is effortless when you just yield to him, confess him, follow him by faith. It is all that's required. And as hard as Jesus might make it sound to follow him here at the end of Matthew 10, you have to remember the same Jesus says this at the end of Matthew 11. 
Matthew eleven twenty eight, where he will say, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is why we follow him, because he took the real burden for us, and following him, just when you yield your life to him, it is effortless. But he is the worthy one. And by the marvel of his grace, through faith, we are made worthy as well. So this morning, if anything, I would just pray you are convicted and resolved and strengthened just to carry on following Christ by faith. This is how we gain him and keep him. And may this be your life's cry. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He is worth following. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we exalt you this morning for the gift of your Son who is worth following. Lord, you look down upon us, you know exactly what you're dealing with, all humanity captured by sin and Satan, gone astray, your enemies. And you would be doing nothing wrong if you simply judged everyone. You would be perfectly righteous and just to do so. Who can stand before you? But we have to remember this God, our God, you are a loving God, merciful, compassionate. You looked upon our helpless estate and you did something for we could do nothing to merit salvation. You did the only thing, sending God the Son, Christ, to live a sinless life, to die on that cross, to bear the weight of all of our guilt and sin, to finish payment, making peace between us and you, rising again. And we unlock Christ, we gain him just by going to him. Really, the anti-work, confessing we, we're not worthy, we can't do this on our own. He did the hard part. We're, we're just with him now. We, we follow him. We identify with him. That is all it takes. I pray, though, you open our eyes this morning to how costly that decision is. It is a decision of faith. We must make it. I pray any here who have not made it, today is their day of salvation. They come to you now. But may we count that cost. This will be costly. We gain everything in Christ, life eternal. None will regret this decision, but it is costly. We must count it, for we want to be true. Convict us, but at the same time, encourage us, knowing Stumble as we do. Our Lord is gracious, patient, compassionate. May we continually repent, continually follow him, and trust him. He's a good Savior, worth following. We have a good shepherd. And so may we find our soul's rest in him while serving you each day here below. It's in this Christ's name we pray. Amen.